the last 14 days, COVID-19 cases are up 20% and deaths up 5% in the United States overall. With the GOP looking to push through a new Supreme Court justice to replace the late RBG, where they haven't moved on COVID-19 relief since July, renewed talks on a second wave of stimulus are back on the table. And in case you were planning on going to a street party in Brazil in the middle of a pandemic, Carnival is officially postponed. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. When I was serving in the city of Detroit, I would spend a lot of time talking to well-meaning folks about how to solve problems in the city. Everyone had ideas. But one thing always became clear. Your concept of a solution depends entirely on what you think the problem is. Take the public health challenge of obesity, for example. Over 40% of Americans are obese, and obesity is a critical predictor of diabetes and heart disease. There's a cruel irony to obesity. In theory, it's a problem of plenty. Go back 100 years, and it was a disease of the rich. The poor in those times simply couldn't afford enough calories, and usually worked physical labor that would tax what little calories they could afford. Today, obesity is far more common among low-income Americans. Why? The cost of food. Consider the cost of a Big Mac meal at McDonald's versus two bags of spinach, which cost roughly the same price, about six bucks. A Big Mac meal has 1,018 calories, whereas two bags of spinach has 208 calories. If you're poor, it's hard to afford a food that would cost you five times as much for the same number of calories. Worse, Detroit has 25 McDonald's restaurants and only 20 grocery stores, the plurality of which are in its well-to-do downtown and midtown districts. In fact, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services labeled 19 of Detroit's neighborhoods food deserts. Personally, I prefer the term food swamps. You've got food. It's just not the nutritious kind. While there are plenty of the macronutrients, like fat and carbs, that grow a belly, there are few of the micronutrients that grow a brain. At the health department, when we were thinking about programs to take on obesity, I'd often hear well-meaning advice. If people ate healthier and exercised more, people would say, well, they wouldn't be so obese. Maybe we can do a campaign around making healthy choices. Telling you to make a healthy choice might be effective if you can actually choose between a Big Mac and a bag of spinach. And there aren't obstacles to getting that bag of spinach, like not having a car. But that's the rub. When we assume that everyone has the same circumstances, we overemphasize quote-unquote personal choices rather than structural obstacles to problems. And the solutions we offer aren't solutions at all, just victim-blaming. And structural obstacles have gotten so much worse for so many people since this pandemic started. 22 million Americans lost jobs since the pandemic started. Many more faced furloughs. 5.4 million lost their health insurance. Millions lost childcare for their kids. Government is supposed to solve those structural challenges. It's why there's some hope now that congressional leaders have restarted talks about another stimulus. The cynic in me wants to believe that this isn't just another ploy to have checks with Donald J. Trump's signature on them sent to millions of homes just before Election Day. The pragmatist in me says it doesn't even matter right now. Too many are suffering, and they deserve government relief. As I think now on what this moment means for people I served in Detroit, it's clear that those choices around food just got a lot harder. The picture of hunger in America isn't the stereotypical image from a faraway place of an infant so skinny you can see his heartbeat through his chest in a famine. But as we discussed, too many kids lack access to the basic micronutrients that are so critical to feeding their growing minds. And for so many families, food insecurity, worry about where your next meal is coming from, is a serious concern. Our guest today is someone who's been thinking about hunger in America and what we can do about it. Her work has taken on an added urgency in the midst of this pandemic. 
We'll talk to Claire Babineau-Fontenot, CEO of Feeding America, after the break. My guest today is Claire Babineau-Fontenot. She is the CEO of Feeding America. Claire, thank you so much for making the time with us. Thank you for having me. We're really excited to um, to have this conversation because it's a conversation we've been needing to have. And I want to ask you, just stepping back, um, even before this pandemic, what is the state of hunger in America? It'll surprise a lot of people in your audience to learn that even before COVID, we're about 35 million people in this country uh, were suffering from food insecurity. It's just not who we think of. Uh, that's not the way we think of ourselves, I think. Uh, in this country, but it, it is an unfortunate truth. Mm. And, um, you know, when, when we talk about the picture of hunger and food insecurity, what do you mean by that? Because I think a lot of folks get this sort of image of, you know, people in other parts of the world who are ravaged by hunger and, you know, you can see the bones in their ribs. Um, but but that's not really the picture of hunger in America, is it? Can you can you give us a sense of you know what hunger and food insecurity mean in in a country like ours? Right, and you know the unfortunate truth is there there certainly are are rare occasions where there would be that type of malnutrition that people mm. are accustomed to associate with other countries. But that is, I'm grateful that that is it's rare. In the United States, though, we have a real issue around food insecurity and food insecurity in contrast with with the term hunger, hunger, everybody thinks about everybody at one moment or another in their lives or in their day even will feel that pang that says that they need more to eat. But food insecurity is is a scenario where you have a person or a family where they do not have consistent access of a nutritious mix of food, the kind of food that you need to build um, st a strong body and a strong spirit. Mm. And that happens way too often in this country. Mm. And what have the consequences of the pandemic been for hunger and food insecurity in America? Well, that number that I talked to you about before, the food insecurity rate, that's a number that's provided by the USDA. But even last year, we were we provided meals to 40 million people last year. Mm. What we've seen since the pandemic is that there's been a food crisis that's gone along with the health crisis. We've seen those numbers soar. And unfortunately, we think that the number will not peak until it climbs to about 50 million people wow. and that nearly 20 million are going to be kids. So it's been significant. Some of our food banks, like one in El Paso, saw increases of 400 percent. Overall, uh, we've seen we've had a moment in time early on in the pandemic when our average estimated increase was more than 70 percent. Now it's about 60. Um, but that's those are huge increases. Mm. That is tragic. Um, can, can you give us a sense of, of the mechanisms that are driving that increase in, in hunger? Is it, is it a function of lost jobs and, uh, and lost opportunities to, to access places where people would usually get a meal, or is it something else? Oh, it's a combination of all of the above. Uh, I talked about children just a minute ago. Let me use children by way of example. Even before COVID, it there was an estimated 22 million kids in this country who relied upon free and reduced lunch. 
for those kids and those families, so many of them were right on the edge. Um, and they were relying upon those school mill meals in order to remain food secure. Mm. As a result of the pandemic, as you know, children have been out of school. And when they're out of school, they don't have access to that meal that they relied upon. Also, there's so many working class poor in this country. I believe that the Federal Reserve Bank did some research not that long ago, and it was before COVID. And it what it revealed was that about 40 percent of American households that were part of this survey that they did didn't have more than $400 cash on hand to deal with an emergency. So now let's talk about COVID and what COVID has done, that all the people who were struggling right there on the brink, so many of them were working in the industries that are hardest impacted by by the pandemic, in the service industries, you know, the restaurant industry, um, hotel industry. So, so many of those people who were right on the edge, unfortunately, uh, have not been able to stay on the other side of that line. And now for the first time in their lives, for so many of them, uh, they're struggling with food insecurity. In fact, um, about 40% of the people who have turned to us for help, and that number has remained constant throughout the pandemic, about 40% of these people who are turning to us for help have never before relied upon the charitable food system, mm. not before now. Wow. Um, can you give me a sense of who those who are most likely to be feeling hunger or food insecure in this moment, who are they? I mean, we know that the consequences of COVID-19 have not been borne equitably. We know that the rates of transmission and the rates uh, of death to COVID-19 are two and a half to even three times as likely uh, among black and brown Americans. And uh, we also know that the livelihoods lost uh, to this pandemic have not been borne equitably. Can you give us a sense of the way uh, that hunger maps to some of the broader uh, inequities in our society? Yeah. So the exact same, nearly identical statistics would apply when it comes to hunger. Um, it is it is so tragic that these communities that are already so vulnerable, like communities of color, that not only are they two times more likely to suffer from the comorbidities and underlying conditions that make them more susceptible to this virus, make the virus uh, more lethal, they're also far more likely to be food insecure to begin with. So on top of being already vulnerable for so many systemic reasons, we layer onto that um, the health pandemic and the food crisis and those those communities are really reeling right now. Now, if our politicians were to get serious about ending hunger in America, what would that look like to you? I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, uh, people have talked to me about food shortages and things of that nature. And I want to throw out a couple of things as context as I answer the question that you've asked. We produce more than enough food in this country to make certain that no one is food insecure. Mm -hmm. But there's often a mismatch of where the food is and the people who need it. Layer on top of that, the fact that before COVID, I was privy to this statistic that not counting household waste, we were sending 72 billion pounds of perfectly edible food to landfills. So if we as a country got serious about food insecurity, we could solve 
food insecurity. And you were talking about policymakers. That absolutely has to be a part of it. So this has to be an all-in fight. We've got to understand that each of us has a role to play. So specifically on the policy front, you take a, the federal nutrition program, take something, uh, an initiative like SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which most people still think about it as food stamps. We happen to know that for every one meal that our remarkable network, and they truly are remarkable, um, can provide in the charitable food system, that SNAP can provide nine. Mm. We know that the amount of, of food that people have access to in the SNAP program is not nearly enough to sustain a vibrant family in all the ways that they need to be sustained. Mm -hmm. And we also know that with kids, for instance, in the middle of a pandemic, there's something called pandemic EBT. And what it basically does is it recognizes that those 22 million kids that I talked about before who are relying upon free and reduced lunch, they're at home right now and their families were already on the edge and they really don't have the wherewithal to help them. So interventions like pandemic EBT, which actually solves for this very problem and it looks, it provides SNAP type benefits, EBT, you know, you get benefits loaded on an EBT card, and for families who have children who are school age who would otherwise qualify for free or reduced lunch. So they're absolutely interventions. There are other ways too, and I don't wanna go into every detail, but I, I wanna just at least explore one more, which is we should incentivize um, businesses to do good. We have a structure in place right now that doesn't truly incentivize businesses to help people in need like the people that we're trying to help. So, so often, in fact, sometimes they're, they're disincentivized, if you will. Sometimes it actually behooves them. It's more, it helps their bottom line better to throw the food away than to give it to people who need it. So there are lots of things that we can do. And, and honestly, that's both the source of my frustration and the source of my optimism, because I know that if we sat at a table and we were serious about this, just like you asked that question, that there are ways that we can make meaningful impact in the lives of people. And food insecurity is so fundamental. It's the building block for everything that's good for people. It, it not only impacts their bodies, it impacts them emotionally, it impacts them behaviorally. Mm -hmm. Pe children who receive access to a nutritious mix of food are more likely to do better in school. Adults who have consistent access to a nutritious mix of food are more likely to do better at work. I mean, there are so many things that start with the foundation of a nutritious mix of food. So I think we as a country need to have used this terrible, tragic moment as an opportunity for enlightenment and to decide that we're going to throw away that old playbook where 40 million people were food insecure. We're going to write a new one where everyone in this country can get consistent, predictable access to a nutritious mix of food. I know we can do it. And, and I'm hopeful that we will. Why, why do you feel like we don't do it? I think the first reason that we were not doing it is because we really just didn't see ourselves that way. Mm. I'll give you as an example, I haven't met very many people who 
haven't heard as a kid when they were a picky eater, you better eat all that food because there are hungry kids in Africa or there are hungry kids in China. Oh, we'd find some distant shore to identify with hunger mm. when the, the kid next door may well be hungry. There is not one county in this whole country, including the richest county in this country, where there's not food insecurity. But it's simply not mm. our perception of ourselves. So I've always thought, and when I came into this role just two years ago, although it feels like a lot longer than that, I have to tell you, but when I, when I uh, had the privilege of moving into this role, one of the things that I was sure of was that if I could do what I could to help the American public to understand what's happening with hunger, that the American public would mobilize and do something about it. And I'll tell you what, we haven't done everything we need to do, but honestly, we have made progress. As a result of the generosity of donors, for an example, since March 1st, from March 1st to July 31st, our network alone provided 2.6 billion meals to people facing hunger. We have never had this level of outpouring of support, but nor have we had this level of need, right? So I think with that raised consciousness, I'm confident we will do more about it. Um, and we are working to do more about it. So uh, hope springs eternal. Well, we appreciate the work. I want to ask you, you know, I, I was the health director for the city of Detroit and one of the principal causes of food insecurity in Detroit is just simply lack of access in the physical space. And people couldn't get to uh, grocery stores with uh, a healthy mix of nutritious foods um, because of limitations in, in transportation and the fact that a lot of those kinds of stores just don't locate in communities like neighborhoods in Detroit. And um, I, I want to ask you about what does it mean to incentivize food sales and uh, groceries in the kinds of, you know, food swamps um, that we see uh, in communities like uh, like the one I served in? Yes. So you actually identified two things that I'd love to explore if you'll allow me. So number one, there some communities have a double whammy. So one, they exist in a food desert. And rural America, there are lots of lots of rural communities that are food deserts. There are also urban communities that are food deserts as well. And that's where you actually can't access nutritious food. It's, it's remote from you. You need a car. Um, it's in the neighboring town or it's an hour away or two hours away. It's remarkable. Um, but there's also this concept of food swamps, which you also just mentioned. And with the food swamp, you have access to food. It's just, it's not nutritious, right? So the least expensive food, um, the food that you can afford to take care of your family with is food that's not healthy for you, but you have precious few choices. So those are the choices you must make because you need to keep yourself and your family alive. So we have both the food desert and a food swamp issue in, in much of America. And the types of things that I think would incentivize that would be, I think there are policy things that could incentivize that. I think you could have tax initiatives uh, and benefits that could flow to organizations for them to be able to make the make it ink, if you will, if they're a for-profit organization, so that they can actually make, do good and do well 
at the same time. But I think what it requires is that we stop, reflect on where we actually are, not where, not the image that we'd like to have of where we are when it comes to food security, and that we sit at a table and we have the right people from a cross section of different places, public, private, charitable, um, all sitting together, ideating on effective solutions. I appreciate that. The, the other even bigger picture question is, you know, what we, what we incentivize our farmers to grow. You know, a, a lot of times when we think about farming, we think of, you know, Farmer Fred and uh, a, a family-owned farm. And a lot of our farming is done that way, but a lot more of it is done by these gigantic mega corporations. And, you know, in our country, we subsidize the farming of corn and soy. And yet we tell folks that they need to eat a lot more green leafy vegetables, but we don't invest in growing those things. How do you think we need to be thinking about even farming uh, in terms of being able to create both norms around what we ought to eat and then providing those things to people? I think you just said it uh, as well as I could. Um, Feeding America has a long history of partnership uh, with farmers. And we have, in fact, in the middle of this crisis, part of what has come out of Congress in a bipartisan way has been some efforts around making certain that we ask our, our American growers and producers to in, and incentivize our American growers and producers to provide the food that people need so desperately in the middle of this crisis. So to your point, there, there are many levers that we can pull and we know that they work. I've, I've personally gone out to a lot of food distributions. I've done it during COVID and before COVID as well. And I've been at distributions, like I was at one in particular that comes to mind in the Bronx. And we were, there, there was this little kid who was eating uh, this, there was a display there and they had made a salad and the salad had kale in it. And the little kid had never seen kale before. That kale was provided by American farmers that came from this country. And it was getting to this kid in the Bronx who discovered how much she liked kale. Right there while I'm with her, she discovered how much she likes kale. We can repeat that over and over across this country. But I, I mentioned this before, if you'll let me, there are a lot of, of rural communities that are suffering right now as well. And it's really hard to wrap your head around, but there are actually people who are in the field producing food that they can't afford to bring home to their own families. Wow. Again, these things, it, we've got to, to look it in the eye squarely, acknowledge where we are, and then put our know-how together to come up with effective solutions. That is a remarkable story. And, um, and you know, some of the some of the ways in which our globalized food space um, have created these crazy dynamics where the people who are literally producing the food can't, can't afford it, you know, something that really should force us to step back and take pause. Um, I really appreciate you coming on today and, and, and sharing a perspective on, on hunger and food insecurity in our country. It really is something critical that we have to be paying attention to. Uh, we asked this to all our guests. How have you been spending these, uh, these crazy days? Well, you know what? Most of the time, I, I think of myself as being among the most privileged people in this country because there are so many people out there who are looking from inside of their homes, 
looking at televisions and out the window and struggling with how on earth can I help? Um, every day, just about every day, I have all of these examples of human generosity and kindness. I, I get to meet um, people, donors, big and small. I get to read letters from little kids who started businesses that and sent me a letter directly to tell me that they're, they have enclosed their check for half the proceeds from their business because they learned that we were out there helping people to feed kids when they needed us the most. And they wanted to give, please accept this check, Miss Babineau Fontenot, on my behalf. I get to see that, witness that every day. And so I feel really privileged that I get to do this work. So I've been spending my time being re-energized every day uh, by being in a role in a network that gets to be out there on the front lines doing something that we know is helping people when they need it so desperately. Mm. So that's what I've been doing. Well, we're really grateful that you've been doing it. And uh, we really appreciate you sharing your insights and your perspective uh, with us. And um, if folks want to get involved or, or be supportive, where can they go? I would encourage them to go to feedingamerica.org. There you can learn more about what's happening with food uh, in this country and food insecurity. You can single out um, a food bank that's in your local community that you care most about, and you can find ways to invest in that local food bank. Uh, we say all the time that what we need in this movement are, uh, would be food funds and friends. And if you go to feedingamerica.org, you can find out how to be all three. Well, uh, we really appreciate it. I hope that uh, listeners will uh, take you up on that offer. And I'm really grateful for you and your work and your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. I appreciate you. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced this last week. We are uh, today moving into uh, what we initially called phase three. Uh, and what that'll mean for the restaurants is that there will not be limitations uh, from the, the state of Florida. Well, here's what Dr. Fauci had to say. When you're dealing with community spread and you have the kind of congregate setting where people get together, particularly without masks, you're really asking for trouble. Never mind the fact that he's governor of a state that was America's worst COVID-19 epicenter just a few months back. This is just dumb policy. Because Florida is known for its warm weather, which means if you can eat outside anywhere in America this fall and winter, it should be Florida. At issue isn't just smart public health. It's what he perceives to be smart politics, which for him basically means doing anything that he can to make Donald Trump feel better about pretending like we're not in the middle of an actual pandemic that has already killed 200,000 people. For his part, Donald Trump just nominated Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court. Hearings for her confirmation start on October 12th. And knowing that the GOP thinks that a successful confirmation of a reactionary judge to the Supreme Court is just the red meat they want to feed their base, they'll try to have this wrapped by Election Day, less than three weeks later. Make no mistake, Barrett is being nominated for two reasons, to strike down the ACA and Roe v. Wade. She's on record criticizing both major Supreme Court rulings that saved the ACA before, and she suggested that Roe was, and I quote, an erroneous decision. If she's confirmed, she'll be seated in time to hear arguments in California v. Texas, a case before the Supreme Court that could spell the end of the ACA. That case begins hearings on November 10th, just a week after the election. 5.4 million Americans have already lost their health insurance through the course of this pandemic. 
It's estimated that 20 million more could lose it if the ACA is struck down. That would mean that we'd have doubled the number of uninsured Americans since before the pandemic. Donald Trump seems to be on a path to making America uninsured again. How do we fix it? We get his ass unelected on November 3rd. At Crooked Media, we're organizing to deliver key swing states to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris through Vote Save America, where you can adopt a swing state. Adopt Michigan. Why? I've already given you a whole bunch of reasons, and I live here. Adopt Michigan at votesaveamerica.com slash Michigan. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takeyasu Zawa and Alex Ruggiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.